Well, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. I want to begin with a story. It's a priest and a, about a priest and a taxi driver who were waiting in line for judgment at the pearly gates. Uh, the taxi driver was first, and so he goes up to St. Peter and said, I'm Brandon Wilson, a taxi driver for New York for 50, or in New York for 15 years. St. Peter looked at his list and smiled. Welcome, Mr. Wilson. Take this silk robe and this golden staff and enter the gates of heaven. The taxi driver walked through the gates wearing his silk robe and bearing his golden staff. Uh, then the priest walked to St. Peter and boomed, I am Father Dan Snow, who preached at St. Mary's Church for 50 years. St. Peter looked at his list and smiled. Welcome, Mr. Snow. Take this wool robe and this wooden staff and enter the gates of heaven. Wait a minute, the priest said. Why does the taxi driver get a better robe and staff than me? I've spent almost my whole life dedicated to the church. Uh, up here, we work by results, said St. Peter. While he drove, people prayed. While you preached, people slept. All that to say, please don't fall asleep when I'm preaching because it's not going to go well for me. Now, obviously, that's not how it actually works, but I wanted to share that story because things in this story did not go as the priest assumed, especially after seeing the taxi driver. He assumed things were going to go really well for him, and so it is for life for us, right? So often in our lives, things do not go how we would assume that they would go. And so today, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we are going to be looking at this question. And that is, why is life the way that it is? Why is life the way that it is? Why is it difficult? Why is it frustrating? Why does evil and brokenness happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is life the way it is? That is the question we are going to be looking at this morning as we continue our time in the book of Genesis. And so uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3? Uh, if you don't, there's a black one around you. You can turn there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Why is life the way that it is? We're going to see why life is the way that it is this morning in Genesis chapter 3. Now, uh, what I want to do is I want to read verse 1 to begin with. I'm not going to recap everything of Genesis, but suffice to say, everything was great. God's pinnacle of creation, Adam and Eve, had arrived on the scene. And then last week, we saw Adam and Eve do the only thing that God asked them not to do, was to take from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, or as we saw last week, the knowledge of good and bad. We talked exa exactly about what all was up with that tree last week, but they did what they were not supposed to do. Now, it started because of what a serpent said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And so I want to start by reading verse 1, and then we'll jump into 14 so we're all on the same page. Here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, we know that's pretty much the exact opposite of what God said. He created a massively amazing place. And he said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree, but from one. But this serpent-like creature says, kind of puts it in the opposite, is that God's kind of restrictive. He doesn't want you to do anything. Now, now here's what's weird about this, right? It says the serpent was, in the Hebrew, a room. In our translations, it says cunning. Some say shrewd. Some say crafty. We looked at this last week. It's actually a neutral word. It's not negative to be shrewd or cunning. It's what you do with it, which of course the serpent uses cunningness for bad means. So, and, but the bigger question is, why is he talking? 
right? That is weird for snakes to talk. And so it makes us think, like, is this just some ancient fable literature where all the animals talk, and so we're not really supposed to trust or believe it. It's supposed to be some sort of mythological story. Um, you should know that ancient readers also thought it was weird for animals to talk. Like, this is not a normal thing. It, was, it sounds bizarre to us. It would have sounded bizarre to them. In fact, there is only one other time in all of the scriptures that an animal talks, and if you're familiar with the story, it's the, it's the story of Balaam's donkey who also speaks. It's the only other time in all of scripture that an animal talks. And in context with the Balaam's donkey story, uh, it happens when there is pagan, dark, sorcery, evil spirits involved in the story. And the only other time an animal talks is in Genesis chapter three, where the same thing is at work, that there's dark spiritual uh, powers and forces at work here. And so uh, that being said, it is a weird thing for snakes to talk. What we're seeing as you read the Genesis story is that this is not supposed to be viewed as simply a normal talk snake. Now, this creature is also presented as having knowledge of God or having knowledge like God, or at least claiming that he has knowledge of God and how he works. And so he says in verse one, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? This is pretty much the exact opposite of what God said. He said you could eat from any tree, uh, but one. And then Eve responds, as we saw last week, by saying, no, we can't eat from all the trees. We just can't eat from one tree. And then the servant responds in verse five by saying, well, actually, if you eat of it, you can be like God. He literally says, if you eat this, you will be like God. And I just want to mention this because I think it's helpful for our understanding. Uh, in our English translations, it says you will be like God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. And in the English or the Hebrew, the grammar here, it's actually a little bit ambiguous as to what the serpent is talking about. Is the serpent saying that you will be like God himself? Or he also could be referring to like spiritual angelic beings. He could be saying that you will be like us. Those of us that have this kind of supernatural knowledge that you do not have. I think the Hebrew is ambiguous on purpose. The serpent is pretty much saying you can be like God or like the gods in ancient uh, mythology context, or in his case, you can be like us who know things that you normal humans do not know. In other words, this serpent seems to have some sort of insider knowledge of how God operates. And he's saying, if you eat from this tree, you also can have this same knowledge. Now, it's debated, and there's a lot of things, of course, that are debated in Genesis. Uh, uh, Cards on the table, I would just say I am persuaded by this view. But it's debated that this serpent here is actually a spiritual being. Now, it's worth noting the text never says it's actually Satan, um, though it certainly could be. And and we'll see as the story unfolds, there's good reason to assume that it is. Uh, this is why we say often here at New City that scripture is meditation or wisdom literature. You're supposed to read and reread it. And as you see the story unfold, you can go back and look at previous stories to understand them better. And so you have this spiritual being that's depicted in the image of a snake, which again, from last week was very significant because snakes in ancient worlds had divine-like qualities, sometimes negative, uh, sometimes associated with curses. And of course, again, Genesis and the first five books of the Bible begin to be composed and put together right after the exodus from Egypt, where snakes played a really big deal. So you have this snake, serpent-like, divine-like being. You know, especially if you're an ancient Israelite, that this can't be what go well, if it's a snake. And then you have this wild animal who is the firstborn. And what we mean by that is on Genesis uh, day number six, uh, God creates the land animals, and then he creates humans. And so uh, technically the animals are the firstborn on day six, and the humans are the secondborn. And so you have this firstborn creature, this snake-like serpent, who has this insider knowledge of the divine council, who wants to usurp the position of the secondborn uh, that was created on day six. Now, 
That might seem kind of weird, like this first, secondborn thing. Like, what does it have to do with this? Because it's a snake, not a human. Again, you'll see throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures, every major family that the scriptures follow, there is always a tension between the firstborn and the secondborn every time. And we're seeing that theme start to develop in the very beginning. Again, so it's this crazy thing, and until you continue to read again, you'll see in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and all of the Hebrew scriptures, there's a constant tension between that person who came first and those that came second. Now, I say all that to say, uh, that's not saying that there wasn't actually a, literally, a literal snake involved. It's not saying that this spiritual being didn't take this, uh, the, the form of a physical snake, but it certainly would have been understood as more than just a mere talking snake. There is something different about this snake. Now, so, so what we see happening is that instead of humans ruling the beasts and the animals with peaceful coexistence, again, this was the Eden ideal, now what you have here is an animal trying to rule the humans. They succeed, as we saw last week, they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, which leads to the famous promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is going to set up the storyline for all of the rest of the Bible. And so let's get into it. Chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, this is after Adam and Eve had taken from the tree their hiding. And now God is going to present a series of curses because of their disobedience. And here's the first one directed towards the serpent. In verse 14, it says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because he tempted them to take from the tree they shouldn't have, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. So we see here the first curse goes to the serpent. Now the question is, what's going on here? Now, and is, everyone wants to know, is this text saying the snakes used to have legs and now they no longer have them? Right? Is that what's going on here? Um, uh, again, it's, there's debate. I'll just say I'm persuaded. I don't think that is at all what this text is talking about. I'm not saying they did have snakes, their legs, and they don't have legs anymore. I'm just saying I don't think that's what the text is saying here. And can you just imagine for a moment how absolutely terrifying that would be if snakes had legs? Like if you're out camping in the woods and you see a snake and like you can't run from it because it's going to outrun you because it's, I mean, that would be awful, right? It's kind of like, like imagine like spiders had wings. Like you just couldn't escape them. Like it would just be, it would be terrible. So so, so what's, the question is, what's happening here? Well, what, what seems to be happening here is that the position of the snake, again, remember, if this is a spiritual being, not just a snake, well, this curse is not just about snakes, like as we see them, but this spiritual being and those who follow the way of the spiritual being, as we'll see here. But, but the position of a snake, again, on their belly and their diet, again, especially the curse he's given to this spiritual being here, was and is a symbol of, humili of, of humiliation. Being on your belly and eating dust is a symbol of humiliation. In fact, um, in ancient Near Eastern language, this was someone who had been humiliated and opposed. So they had a position of rank and honor, and now they no longer have it, and they are humiliated, right? Someone who had been captured and been thrown down. You, you see this language like when a king or a nation was captured, it was said that the ruler was thrown down to the ground and told to eat dust. It's like you are being humiliated because of what you have done. And in fact, it's just like today when I was a kid, I'm sure it's probably the same for kids today. Like you remember like when you're like running around playing with your kids about to have like a bike race, like there's always that one kid that's like looking around and what does he say? 
eat my dust. Right? That's what he said. It's like, bro, that's weird, right? But what is he saying? Right? He's I'm going to beat you and you are going to lose and I'll have victory and you will eat dust. This is what the, the God is saying to this serpent here, that this curse is given to this serpent figure and will be the result of all who follow him. We'll see this unfold as we continue through Genesis, but this curse is not just given to the serpent, but it's, for, it's to all who follow their serpent-like desires. If they follow the way of the serpent, they will be humiliated. And so what we see from the very beginning, even in Genesis chapter three, is this, that all of us are tempted by the serpent. All of us are tempted by the serpent. The story that scripture gives us when we face temptations in our lives is that it is more than what just meets the eye. It's not just things that we might want to do. We're trying to say no to There are evil demonic forces at work, at play that are trying to deceive us, that are trying to pull us away from who God is and what God would have from us or for us. It's not just temptations on the surface level. There is dark first forces beyond what we can see that we must fight against, right? This is the story of scripture. You see this time and time again. You, you even see this in the New Testament. So in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, one of the foundational leaders in the early church, he writes this in verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In other words, our battle is not just against political opponents or people we might not like or people who do things that we might not want to do. It's against evil and darkness. What this is showing us is that self-help and better habits alone, they will not save us. Like if you are not prepared for the temptations and where these temptations come from, you will lose. You will lose. Trying harder on its own will not help you and it will not save you. You need someone to help you fight against these powers that you cannot fight against on your own. It kind of makes me think of my about to be five-year-old son, Roman. He has this bucket of plastic woodworking tools and they look good on the outside. They look functional until you pick them up and you see they're really light. Like, and if he were to take these plastic woodworking tools into my garage with me, he would not be able to build anything. Right? They are not equipped to actually make something in the real world. They are, they are not. And so the question then for us as we read this and as we ponder about the serpent-like temptation that, that comes for all of us is how will it be possible then to fight against the forces of darkness and, and evil in our lives? How can we actually fight against our true enemy and not people or places or things that aren't our actual true enemy? How will this happen? Well, if we continue reading chapter 3, verse 15, this is how it's going to happen. God here is still talking to the serpent. And then he says this. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and, he, and you will strike his heel. So again, the question is, when it's talking about the seed or the offspring of the snake, what's going on here? Is it talking about like baby snakes, like watch out for baby snakes because they're going to get you? Or is it talking about something else? Again, as you continue to read Genesis, you see quite clearly that it's talking about something else. The question then becomes, what does it mean to be born of the snake? What does it mean to be the offspring of a snake? In fact, our very next story, next week, the, the story of Cain and Abel, we are going to see what this actually looks like. But, but spoiler alert for now, uh, Genesis chapter 4 is going to tell us that Cain gives into this beastly, animal-like, serpent-like temptation, does something he should not do, and then bad things happen as a result. He gives into this beastly, animal-like temptation, and he sins. 
And then Cain, for much of the rest of Scripture, particularly in the Genesis narrative, is going to become a model figure of someone giving into the seed or the offspring of the serpent. And so instead of ruling the beast of the field and having dominion over creation, we, we give into it, we give into the temptations of the serpent, and they rule over us. But the stuff in Genesis, I mean, it is so packed as you read and reread it here. There's, there's so much going on here. But what we see ha- happening right here is that this struggle between human and animals, this struggle between uh, the, uh, what we want to do, the good that we should do, and these serpent, animal-like, sinful temptations will be a continual one and will be hard to overcome. But there is good news, right? The good news is that there will be an offspring from the woman that will one day crush this serpent, You will cause pain and suffering uh, to humanity and to this snake crusher, but in the end, he will ultimately crush your head. Now, if you want some Bible nerd knowledge, this verse, chapter Genesis 3.15, is what is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. So if you want to sound smart, you can just say that to your friends. I learned about the Proto-Evangelium. Do you know what that is, right? And just be like, what are you talking about, right? So this is the first announcement. Here's what this means. The first announcement of the gospel in the scriptures, that the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and we're going to see Genesis as well, are looking for and longing for someone who will not fall to the temptation of the serpent, who will overcome the serpent and their animal-like desires. And what you see is that person after person in the scriptures, even the heroes that make a lot of good decisions, all of them at least once, sometimes many times, fall to the temptation of the serpent-like desires. All of them, at least at one point, if not many points, do what not is right in God's eyes, but is right in their eyes that leads to destruction. They all fail. But the whole thing is, who is the one that can actually overcome the serpent? Now, that being said, what you see here, even in Genesis, right, right after they do the only thing that God asks them not to do, after he's done all of these things for him, he asks them to do one thing, they don't listen, and here's what, I just want to point this out, right away what we see, even in the beginning of scripture, is that God offers grace when we deserve judgment, God offers grace when we deserve judgment. Now, that we have consequences for our actions, absolutely, but consequences do not equal rejection. Just because there might be negative consequences for a decision we made does not mean that God has rejected us. That all God has done to provide for them, they disobey, and his response is hope from the beginning, which is why it's always funny to me when we talk, people talk about like depictions of the God of the Old Testament as mean and vindictive and angry until you actually read the stories. And time and again, he's trying to offer grace and forgiveness and mercy if people would just ask for it. And this makes me wonder, especially when we have all of scripture in view and we know who God is and we see God ultimately revealed in Jesus and who Jesus was and is and how he operated and lived. I cannot help but wonder, and of course, I don't know what would have actually happened. This is purely conjecture on my point, but on my, on my side. But I cannot help but wonder what would have happened if after Adam and Eve took from the tree they were not supposed to, instead of running and hiding, if they had just gone to God and said, hey, we blew it and I'm sorry. I have to wonder, how would things, how might have things been different if that was their response? Not that there would not have been any consequences at all, but we see a God who's inviting us into a relationship with him, who right away, Adam and Eve have done nothing but sin. They haven't done anything to like earn their way back to God or whatever. Already he's saying, I'm going to provide a way out. I am going to provide hope. I just have to wonder 
what God would have done. Because what we see in Jesus is God is a God of grace over judgment. That he wants to provide mercy and forgiveness and love. Now he is self-righteous and holy and all right. And so he is going to condemn and do away with evil. And so he has to do something with it. And so he sends Jesus, for those of us that would trust and follow him, he would send Jesus, the ultimate snake crusher, to be the one who stands in our place so that we can experience the grace of God. Right, so the power and the spirit of the snake crusher is given to us by God and is what we need. We need this snake crusher to fight on our behalf. We need a God whose spirit will guide us to say no to sin and temptation when we face it. God offers grace when we deserve judgment, and he does it right away as soon as sin enters the world. And so that's the, serpent, or the curse for the serpent, and now he's going to talk to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and it says this. He said to the woman, so this is God speaking, I will intensify your labor pains. You, rebel, you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, as a side note, as, when I was a kid, I was happy. I was so glad I was a boy for one and one reason only. And that was because I knew that when, when I was older, I would not have to give birth to a child. Like that, I was just, that's why I was glad I was a boy. That was it. And so it has nothing to do with this. I just thought you should know that. When I was a kid, I was glad I wouldn't have to give birth. Now, the curse here, I, I want to mention two things. There's a lot going on here, just high level. I want to mention two things really quickly. The first is pain in childbirth. Pain in childbirth. Now, this strikes at the heart of one of the biggest distinguishing factors between men and women, which is the ability to bear children. One of the biggest factors between men and women is the ability to bear children. Not just today, but even in the ancient world where men pretty much found their identity and hope in what they could produce and the income and the, what they could cultivate. And women primarily found their identity and hope in how many children they could have. Or if they couldn't have any children at all, it was very shameful and very disgraceful and just very sorrowful for women, particularly in the ancient world where your value essentially was in the, if you could have children or not. Whereas I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that is the kind of assumption of the culture at that time time. And so the curse here is given to the woman. Now we're going to see in verse 20, uh, the woman's name is going to be Eve, which means the mother of all living. So the thing that she is going to start and all women after this gift that only women can do are now is now going to be difficult. It will be painful. Now I, I want to mention this, this likely what's happening here. It's not just talking about the physical act of giving birth to a child, which is painful, but it's actually talking about more than just that. In fact, the word that we have translated here as pain uh, certainly can refer to physical pain in Hebrew, but it also can refer to mental pain. Like it, it can refer to worry and grief and anxiety. And what, what the curse seems to be saying here is that this whole process, not this just the act of actually giving birth, but this whole process will have difficulty, will be anxious for you, and will be hard. Even today with all of our modern technology, right? A, a woman who is pregnant is constantly worrying about the child, right? Are they healthy? I haven't felt them kick in a while. Am I eating the right thing? Are they going to come out okay? Is everything okay with my child? It's not just physical anguish, but it's mentally difficult as well. So that is a curse. And then the second curse, it says, is that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So, so what we see happening is that this Eden ideal, this co-ruling, co-equal dynamic is now fractured. It is not what it was, once was. It is not what I would argue it will be when God, when Jesus comes back and recreates the heavens and the earth. For, for now, what we see happening is that she will want to rule over her husband, and yet the man will continue to dominate her or will dominate over her. Now, as always, it's Genesis. 
Lots of debate about what's actually happening. I just want to, real quickly, three, three things that it could be referring to here, just so you can know. Uh, one of the things this domination could be referring to is the fact that a woman needs a man to bear a child. And what you have in a relationship is that if you have a relationship where someone has more power than the other one, well, there is a power imbalance, and the one who's in power can manipulate and control if they want to. And so if a woman's desire today, but even more so in an ancient world where your identity worth was found and if and how many children you could have, if you need a man to help you have a child, well, there is a power imbalance in the relationship that the man can now withhold or rule over you with. So it, it could be talking about since she needs the man and the, she can't do what she wants to do without a man, at least in the position of having children, he can rule over you in this way. That's what it could be referring to. Uh, it could also, or instead, be referring to the non-Eden ideal, where originally this love and leadership and care from Adam is now going to be replaced by dominance, right? Because men, generally speaking, are physically stronger, bigger, and faster. They can impose their will over women. And you see this all over human history, where men were, would, would, would beat or abuse or not create, uh, see women as equal. And because they were physically stronger, they could do that. So there will be this ongoing struggle for control. And since the man is stronger, he can dominate you if he wants. Or it could be that Eve's desire is now simply going to be misplaced. That instead of looking to God for her source of comfort and identity and love, her desire is now going to be for her husband. That she's going to look for her husband. And just like man's desire, we're going to see his curse in a second, is going to be in what he can cultivate and what he can earn. His desire is misplaced. Her desire is also going to be misplaced. And looking to get from man, for her husband, if she's married, what can she can only get from God? Now, again, it could be any one of those things. It could be something else. The point is, it is somewhat ambiguous what's going on here. But the point is that the relational ideal is now broken. The relational co-ruling, co-equals, love and mutual care is now not what it once was. And I would argue will, what it will be when Jesus returns. And so this is the curse she gives to, Adam, to Eve. And now he gives the curse to Adam. He says this, and he said to the man, verse 17, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the, uh, the plants of the field. You will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So Adam is taken from the Adamah, man is taken from the ground, and that is where he is going to return. Now, what we again see here is that mankind's relationship with the ground, not just with one another, but even with the ground, is also fractured. That they are to rule over it. This has now been reversed. Instead of the ground submitting to mankind, it is now going to resist us. That Adam will also experience pain and anguish and frustration, just like the woman. That the blessing of working with God, again, and the Eden ideal, uh, Work was not a curse. It was something that always produced fruit and benefit. It is now going to be difficult for you. It will now be frustrating for you. The land that the humans were to cultivate and to rule over will not always produce fruit. Instead, in fact, sometimes it will produce thorns and thistles and things that are inedible and not good for you to eat. We've all experienced this in our life, right? When you're working at your job or you're working towards something and you're doing all the right things and the things don't go according to plan, we are experiencing the frustration here. That inedible growth will also occur, that labor will 
will be hard and will be frustrating for you. That the abundant productivity in Eden will now no longer be the case. It will no longer be the case. And so to dust, Adam and humans, humanity, will return. Now, again, this is all ironic because Adam and Eve are not given what they assumed they were going to get from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, what the serpent promised them. Instead, instead of their lives being elevated, uh, they now brought chaos and death and decay to their lives. Life will now be a lot harder for both men and women. Uh, but, but interestingly enough, even God's grace about sending a redeemer, a snake crusher, even death is meant to be seen as a grace from God so that human beings would not have to live in the eternal consequences of disobeying God, that we long for the time when the serpent will finally be crushed and death will be no more. That's what we are looking towards. And so what we see happening in Genesis 3 is this, is that life is not what it could have been. Life is not what it could have been. That's what we see happening here. Now, I want to mention this. Uh, perhaps if you grew up in the church, you might be familiar with this language. You might have heard the, 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 uh, the phraseology. That's a, that's a fancy way of saying that. The phrasing of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That God created, then there was a fall, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, then there was redemption, that Jesus came to redeem us. And then when he returns a second time, there will be restoration. There will be a new city that will function just like Eden functioned. Um, I, at least in my current understanding of Genesis, I'm actually more drawn, instead of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, to understanding it as creation, brokenness, redemption, restoration. And the reason why I think brokenness is a better understanding than, than fall is, one, because fall is kind of ambiguous. It's like, what does that even mean? Uh, but secondly, if you remember, God created a world that was chaotic and unsubdued. He subdues a certain part of it, the land, I would argue the promised land. And in the promised land, he creates Eden, a special sacred space where things seem to grow with little effort. They're, the Adam and Eve are walking with God. And what was, their, what was their plan? To multiply and subdue the earth. And so when this first sin happened in Genesis chapter 3, the entire earth was not yet Eden-like. It was not yet subdued in its totality. It was not, for lack of a better word, it was not yet perfect, perfected because humans were still in one simple, small location. And so now they sin and now it is broken. And now what that means is life today is not what it could have been if this Eden-like garden had spread over all the earth and we were all loving each other and walking with the Lord. Things are not what they were in Eden because they sinned and they are now today not what they could have been because sin has entered the world and I would argue not what they will be when Jesus comes a second time to recreate a new city where we can walk with God and enjoy him. Life is not what it could have been because Adam and Eve have chosen to do what was right in their own eyes and we'll see, they were not the only ones to do it. We would also fall into that trap. But for now, let's continue reading. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, and it says this. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So Eve is given her name, and clothing from the animals is given to Adam and Eve to hide their nakedness. Again, this is God's grace. He says, I'm going to send a snake crusher and the, like, the little fig, fig leaf thing that they try to do. He kills an animal and clothes them properly for the environment that they are now in. It gives them a grace. And then verse 22, it says this, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil or good and bad, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work, from the, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the, and, and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So what we see because of their sin, Adam and Eve are banished from Eden without access to this tree. They are not going to live perpetually. They will not live forever anymore. They will one day die. And Adam and Eve are now in some ways like us. In verse 22, the us here, he's talking about these spiritual beings, the heavenly realm, the people that actually know more than the average human does. God's like, now they're going to be like us. But as we saw last week, they do not have the wisdom to make the right decisions to live this way. And so I need to banish them so they don't live in their sin in their shame forever. They have more understanding about what is going on around them, Adam and Eve do, because they took from this tree, but they don't have enough wisdom. And with the frustrations of life, God says they should not live forever in this state. And he guards the entrance to the garden, specifically to the tree of life, so they would not live in this state forever. And so now Adam and Eve are in a condition. This is the condition they now find themselves in. Broken relationships, a broken, frustrating labor. Things are not as harmonious as they were and as they should have been. And this is the condition that all of us can relate to. Frustrations with work, with relationships, with making bad decisions, and of course, ultimately with death. And so again, the question for us this morning is, why is life the way that it is? Well, here's the answer. It's because we have all done what is wise or what is right in our own eyes. We have all done what we assumed was right in our own wise, taken things when we were not ready for them, done things that were not honoring to God and, and loving to others, and created a cycle of sin and death and despair. We have all fallen short of even our own standard of morality. Even if you're like not quite sure about this Jesus thing, all of us would say there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong, and we would, we would, we would all admit that we've all done things that even we would say are wrong. We have all fallen short. And if God is a righteous and holy God, a good judge, he has to do something with it. He cannot say it does not matter. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus to be the substitute on our behalf so that he can still deal with sin and still welcome us in. And so I just want to say this. If you think, like sometimes people are like, well, I don't know if I should even come to church because like God will smite me if he knew, because I've done all these bad things and I shouldn't be here. I just, here's what I want you to know. In the kingdom of God, there are no tears. There are no levels to this. We are all in the exact same boat. All of us at various points in our lives have done things that we assumed were right, knowing good and well they were not the right and honorable thing. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes this, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. doesn't matter your gender, your ethnicity, how much money you make, right? Our righteousness, our forgiveness is not based on our effort or not trying to do bad things. It's based on what Jesus has done, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the snake crushing seed who has come to offer redemption and will one day return again to make all things right. That those who follow and trust and submit their lives to the Lord will receive grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And those who like the sermon but do go their own way, think they know better, think they don't need anyone else and certainly not don't need God, they will one day see their need for God and then that they need his grace and mercy and righteousness that they cannot earn it on their own. And so today, we see Genesis 3 ending on a low note. But the hope is that life will, always, will not always be this so as I end, I just want to end with, with this question, right? Where is my life headed? 
Where is your life headed? Is it headed towards life, towards freedom that Christ offers, or is it headed towards death, to your own decisions, to your trying to earn it and work on it on your own, apart from the spiritual power of God given through his son Jesus that we experience through the spirit? What a, uh, John chapter John 10, 10, it's a well-known verse. So many of you might be familiar with it. Jesus says that the, that the, uh, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? This is what the serpent does in Genesis chapter 3. But Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not, not restriction, uh, not like never having a good time, but you would have freedom, that you would have grace, that you can fight the sins in your life, that sin does not always have to be what it is because God, through the power of his spirit, wants to enable you as you walk with him to fight these temptations, that he is offering us life even in this broken and dreary world. We can experience his grace and one day experience it in his fullness when he comes to step, step on the snake's head once and for all. Where is my life headed? Is it headed towards death and my own effort and trying to do my own? thing, or is it headed towards the life that God offers to us through the snake crusher? And hear me, it doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, or what has been done to you. The grace of God is equally accessible to all of us, because it's not about us, it's about him. 